Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. There we go. Ooh, too loud. Okay, if you're unfamiliar with Calvary Chapel, we uh, preach chapter and verse, chapter at a time, and I have been going through the book of Galatians, and uh, we're on chapter 4 today. Paul had introduced the gospel of sovereign grace to the Galatians, bringing the truth that salvation is received through faith in Christ's atoning work on the cross, plus nothing that we could add. That truth was now being undermined as he wrote this letter by a group called the Judaizers. Now they were fiercely devoted to the Mosaic ceremonies and rituals and standards and practices, and they believed that Paul's gospel message was just too simple and too far removed from Jewish roots, and it wasn't uh, that it was too easy, it didn't require enough demands of its adherents, and now these believers were drifting and had accepted an inferior and an impotent substitute based on the old Mosaic rituals and ceremonial standards. Standards that the new covenant in Christ had made invalid, and that even under the old covenant had no power to save. Paul defends, in the first few chapters of this book, he defends his calling, pointing out that he was called by God. He didn't uh, go to school, uh, but that actually when God knocked him off his donkey and struck him blind and saved him. He actually went away to Arabia for a while and didn't see the other apostles for a long time. And so he defends his calling. He defends his message in the first few chapters and his apostleship in in the book. And he lays out six arguments to prove that God saves sinners through faith in Christ in the book and not by works. The first argument was what we talked about in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, was the personal argument, where Paul talked to these Galatian Christians and he said, you know, you had your experience with Christ, you knew how he saved you, and, and you know what you experienced, how God changed your life. And Paul asked the rhetorical question of these Christians, he said, did you receive the Spirit by faith or by keeping the law? And of course the answer is... Of course, the Spirit. The second argument he made was a scriptural argument in verses 6 through 14, quoting uh, six Old Testament scriptures where uh, he lays out that Abraham was counted or imputed righteous by believing God by faith. No works, no ceremonies, no rituals, just because he believed God. The third argument was in verses 15 through 29 of chapter 3 where he explains a covenant and how it works and that once it's enacted, covenants can't be changed or annulled. And that brings us to chapter 4. Let's look at those verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate and he is under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, when we were children... We were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. 
And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. And now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Well, today I want to talk. A, I'll take a little twist on this. You know, uh, we are. The Bible tells us to be aware of Satan's devices, and there's a lot of things going on in our world today. Unless your head's in the sand, there's. There's a lot of things that, that we can see where he's working. I don't know if you know about Drag Queen Story Hour. Do you know about that? Men who pose as, dress up as women and come read story books to toddlers. Uh, there's all kinds of craziness. Here's a headline from this week. Target makes changes to pride collection after $9 billion loss in stock uh, value and backlash. Here's the story. Target's stock value has taken a hit amid controversy over a collection uh, the company unveiled ahead of the so-called Pride Month, which is June, that has ties to British designer whose pr brand promotes satanic imagery. Fox Business reported that the retail chain lost $9.3 billion in market value, and the corporation's shares have dropped by more than 12.6% since the consumer backlash began last week. Here's a statement by Target. For more than a decade, Target has offered an assortment of products aimed at celebrating Pride Month. Since introducing this year's collection, we've experienced threats impacting our team members' sense of safety and well-being while at work. Target wrote in a Wednesday statement, Given these volatile circumstances, we are making adjustments to our plans, including removing items that have been at the center of the most significant controversial behavior. The statement continues. Our focus now is on moving forward with our continuing commitment to LGBTQIA plus community and standing with them as we celebrate Pride Month throughout the year. While Target did not disclose in the statement which items it intended to remove, some of the products that have received the most backlash included tuck-friendly women's swimsuits for men. Now, for you bubbles out there, that is a swimsuit that these transgender people, men, wear to hide their male parts so that they look more feminine. So th that's it. The designs by this company called um, Abprelin, a London-based company that creates products with occult imagery, have also garnished public outrage. You're seeing one on the screen right now. Uh, as you can see, that says Satan respects pronouns. I don't know if you want your toddlers or your young people wearing that, but I don't think most of you do. Here's another headline from a Christian Post. San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus Faces Backlash After Releasing We're Coming For You. It's a song. The San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus has faced intense backlash after releasing a song that many believe is intent on pushing the LBGT agenda on children. In the song, which was released, this is an older story, uh, a while back, uh, it was released, it shows that uh, they got an immense public criticism. The choir sings such phrases as, we'll convert your children. 
we're coming for your children, which was viewed as an overt threat by anybody with their eyes open. You uh, think we're sinful. You fight against our rights, one choir member sings in a solo at the beginning of the song. You say we all lead lives you can't respect, but you're just frightened. You think we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. He continues, funny, just this once you're correct. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. Also in the headlines, you've been hearing about Elon Musk and AI, artificial intelligence. Well, old Elon has reportedly said in reference to AI, and I quote, we are summoning the demon. Well, if you're not sure which demon he's talking about, Google his Halloween costume from last year. This is it. As you can see, it has Baphomet on it and an inverted cross. And in this particular Halloween, you know who he said he was? He said he was Satan's champion. Okay? So in his latest book, uh, The Return of the Gods, Jonathan Kahn has discloses how society has returned to all these kinds of pagan worship. And the Bible tells us that those pagan idols that people worshipped back in those days were actually demons. The things they sacrificed were to demons. And Jonathan Kahn lays out in his book, The Return of the Gods, how that has happened in our society and it is continuing to get stronger and will until the return of Christ. So we're seeing a brazen and a bold attempt to normalize the demonic. I want to talk this morning about a typical way demons go to work in contemporary religions, including the visible Christian church. I think you'll find that this particular method they use is fairly antiseptic. They often avoid the appearance of evil, lest they be exposed for the merciless, life-destroying demons that they are. Therefore, the work they do in the church is extraordinarily deceptive. Of course, not many people today believe that there are such things as demons, evil spirits who oppose God and blind the minds of unbelievers and do their best to deceive, if possible, even the elect. There is such a difference between voodoo, witch doctors, black magic, divination, exorcism on the one hand, and then we're a generation of space technology, uh, robotic microsurgery, uh, um, we have AI, we have psychotherapy, on the other hand, that most of the enlightened, emancipated, high-tech West finds it hard to believe in demons, even though our Lord took demons deadly serious. We find it hard to take them serious because in our culture, we haven't seen many of the kind of strange supernatural manifest manifestations we typically associate with these demons. But if we reject their reality, we reject the counsel of Jesus and all his apostles. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus said this, If by the finger of God I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you, Jesus said. And Paul said this, We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heav heavenly places. That was in Ephesians 6.12. Peter said, your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour in 1 Peter 5.8. In the book of James, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you in James 4.7. John the Beloved said, every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard was coming 
and now is in the world already in 1 John 4.3. What we really need to realize is that already in the pre-scientific world of the first century, the Apostle Paul and Jesus, James, Luke, John, all these guys exposed, they, they knew the spirit of Antichrist was around. Well, in this particular verse we're going to look at today, Paul, through divine inspiration, exposes a typical demonic scheme that I think is quite prevalent in the 20th century in the Western society, and it's just as destructive as voodoo, witchcraft, or divination. It's clean, it's moral, it's religious, and it's hellish. Paul lays it out for us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We're going to look at that this morning. The main point of the passage is, don't turn back from Christ and become slaves of demons. Notice verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. Paul wants to reserve the word capital G-O-D for the one true God. But he knows that the formerly the Galatians were in bondage to beings that they caused God. Because see, they weren't, they weren't Jews. These were Gentiles. And they worshipped all these foreign gods. And what's important for us to see, that he does not deny the existence of these beings. He only denies that they have a nature which qualifies them to be gods. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. For although there may be, although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. In other words, though he doesn't like the titles they carry, Paul admits that these so-called gods or lords do exist. And in 1 Corinthians 10.20, he makes it clear that these beings are demons. What pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. So in Galatians 4.8, Paul is saying that these formerly Gentile Galatians had not known the true God and had been enslaved to demons who exercised their power through religious practices. The danger they were facing now as new Christians is that they might turn back and become enslaved again after having tasted the joy and freedom of Christ. Notice verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? It's clear in the RSV that the translators regard this weak and beggarly elemental spirits here in verse 9 to be the same enslaving beings of verse 8. Verse 8 You once were in slavery to these demonic beings. Verse 9. How is it that you want to turn back to those same enslaving elemental spirits? But in other versions, uh, don't use the term or the translation elemental spirits. The King King James Version has weak and beggarly elements. The NIV has weak and miserable principles. And the NASB has weak and worthless elemental things. The Greek word behind this is a word called stoichia, and uh, I'll spell that out for you in case you want to make a note. It's S-T-O-I-C-H-E-I-A. And that Greek word 
can have all those different meanings. Basic principles, elements of the material world, or spiritual beings standing between man and God. So the question is, which one fits the context here? The connection between verse 8 and verse 9 makes it very likely that the best translation is elemental spirits because verse 8 talks about a former bondage to spiritual beings and verse 9 talks about the danger of returning to that bondage. But look at the connection between verse 9 and 10. This would suggest that the Galatians are returning not to evil spirits but to Jewish law. Verse 10 says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. These probably refer to Jewish holidays or holy days and festivals. So when you read verse 9 in the light of verse 10, the elemental things would seem to be legal ordinances rather than spiritual beings. So how can we reconcile both these verses, verse 8 and verse 10, and trying to understand verse 9? Well, verse 9 says that the Galatians are turning back from Christ to slavery. Verse 8 suggests that the slavery is to demons. Verse 10 suggests that the slavery is to legal ordinances about holy days and festivals. So the, re- the way to reconcile both verses is to let them both be true and let them paint us, point us to a profound and subtle relationship between demons and the law of God as used by the Judaizers. It is true, as verse 10 suggests, that the Galatians were in danger or in the process of accepting these Judaizers' teaching that circumcision and dietary laws and holy days should be used to show God that you're worthy of blessing. You see, we're going back to works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by the act of Christ on the cross. Verse 10 fits perfectly with all we've seen so far about the dangers of legalism. In fact, Paul's fear in verse 11 that he has labored in vain sounds just like Galatians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where he said, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain, if it really is in vain? Both in verses chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and 4, verse 9 through 11, the danger is that these Christians will turn back from dependence on the Spirit of Christ to dependence on themselves and the flesh. The danger is that they begin to use the law of God as a divine job, job description to help them demonstrate their moral accomplishment to God in the hope of obtaining the wage of blessing. So verse 10 fits perfectly with all that we've seen so far about the dangers of legalism. But what verse 8 does is to give us an even deeper understanding of what happens when a person uses the law like that. And you know people, and I know people, who are very adherent to their strict religious, you know, I attend church three times a week, and I do this, and I do that. And they're earning their way to heaven, they think. This is the very thing that they've been deceived into believing. This word says our righteousness is filthy rags. We're hopelessly lost. The only salvation is through Christ alone and the work of the cross. 
Anytime we think we're earning favor with God, we're heading down a wrong path. But verse 8 does give us a a deeper understanding of what happens when a person uses the law like that. The most astonishing thing, uh, he, he says, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. Paul says these Galatian Christians are in danger of going back into the slavery of their former Gentile pagan religion when they turn to the legalism of the Judaizers. Now that's a pretty bold statement to say, hey, if you listen to the Judaizers and you keep the Jewish traditions, you might as well be going back to worshiping demons. That's basically what he's saying here. Remember, these Galatian believers were Gentiles whose past was not Jewish law, but Gentile paganism and idolatry. So the Judaizers must have been thunderstruck to hear Paul say to the Galatians, if you begin using Jewish law to show God the merit of your virtue, you come under the sway of demons and are no better off than in your former identity or idolatry. In other words, Paul has uncovered for us a typical demonic scheme that is just as prevalent in the religions of the 20th century as it was in Paul's day. It's clean, it's moral, it's religious, and it's hellish. One of our duties is to help you stay alert to the deceitful methods of Satan. The book says we're not unaware of his devices. He's relentless in his efforts to destroy your wholehearted dependence on God's sovereign grace. So if he cannot make you disobey his commandments, he can't get you smoking dope, drinking, having illicit affairs, you know what? He'll bend every effort to make you obey God's laws with the wrong spirit for the wrong motivation. Do you recall how in Romans chapter 7, verse 11, it says, Sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me. And it killed me. Paul could write that very thing about Satan and the demons. They love to take God's holy law and use it to deceive us and to kill us if they can by tempting us to use the law as a vehicle for self-righteousness. Well, you know, I, I worked at the food bank. I, I, got, two, I got two gold stars this week. Um, I prayed three times and that, that got me a couple little ribbons and uh, you know pretty soon I'm going to have such a collection God's going to have to do this or do that for me that's legalism it does not work we're not saved by that we don't receive any blessing by that there are some false apostles in Corinth who were using the law like this they listen to what Paul says about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 13 through 15 such men are false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ and no wonder for even satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness that's a bold statement satan and his servants achieve some of their most destructive work in the church by becoming servants of righteousness. What kind of righteousness? The kind described in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, uh, tongue-tied, Romans 10, verse 3, where he said this, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit 
to God's righteousness. Satan and his demons specialize in taking the commandments of the law and alluring people in the church to make those commandments a basis of their self-righteousness. Paul saw the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers. Uh, He saw what was behind it. It was an attempt to destroy genuine faith and with it the church. Do you see what this means for us now? Satan does not care if you try to keep the Ten Commandments. Provided you take the credit for yourself. In fact, he'll assist you in your moral resolve if you'll do it that way. If you'll get puffed up about it, take a little pride in it, you know, how many times you attended church, how many Ten Commandments you've kept, how much Bible you've read, how much offering you gave, uh, how many uh, little old ladies you helped across the street. He'll assist you with all that. He doesn't even mind if you come to church. He don't care if you teach Sunday school or you preach or you lobby for some uh, right-to-life bill, or you fight for prayer in the schools. He's okay with that. He's in favor of whatever your moral agenda is, provided you rely on yourself and not the Spirit of Christ, and that you take credit for it yourself, instead of humbly giving God the glory. All the glory belongs to God. Do not, so do not be unprepared. Our adversary has a very clever scheme by which he aims to ruin us and the church. And I think the church is pretty much ruined. Look at what's going on in our world. Francis Schaeffer, when abortion was starting back in the 70s and 80s, he said they ought to hang a sign on every abortion clinic in America. This is allowed by the church of God. Now, we're getting serious. We're getting serious. See, he doesn't mind if we come to church. He doesn't mind if we be religious. But the church has been silent. The things I talked to you about earlier are going on. Where's the church? They want to mutilate your children and turn them into transgenders. They want to abort them in the womb and say they're not human. And where's the church been for the last 60 years? It's time to wake up. It's time that we stop being religious and be Christ's followers and all the glory be His. Our adversary has a clever scheme by which he aims to ruin us in the church. So how do we ensure that we aren't deceived. Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. When we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, I love that. John says that all the time. But God. When the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that through God you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an hour. I want you to think about this morning. We were slaves on the market block. I know you guys have read a little bit of history. You know how they treated the slaves. You know They were treated very roughly, rudely, cruelly. I want you to imagine this morning you're on the, you're on the slave block. You're getting ready to be sold. 
maybe some rough character comes up and he smacks you around and looks in your ears and you know does this different things to you that you don't really enjoy and the bidding starts and this one man the man Christ Jesus says I'll buy this person I'll pay the price I'll pay the ultimate price I'll pay my life so Christ has done that for each of us he has paid the price to redeem us from the slavery to the flesh and sin and our appointment in the lake of fire eventually that's what he's done but you know he took it a step further than that not only did he free us from being slaves but the Father has adopted us as sons and daughters. Think about that. Vile, covered in sin as we were, no hope. He redeemed us from slavery and then he adopted us as sons. And with that sonship, you know what else comes? Heirs. Everything. What does God own? Everything. So everything that's His is now ours. That Abba, Father, that, that spirit that cries out Abba, Father, means Daddy. Our condition is that we were slaves, but when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son. We we're on the slave market, and Christ bought us back, but He didn't stop there. He's adopted us and we are have an inheritance of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, in the King James Version, it says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. And it doth not, doth not yet appear what we shall be, for we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through 12, it says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. I'm going to tell you, folks, this world is passing away. We are in the end of time. Break your attachment to things in this world. Jesus is coming back soon. What men and women should we be? The rulers of this age, he says, are coming to nothing. If you build your life on these things you see and touch and have in this life, it's going to all crumble in your hands when you stand before God. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew for had they known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory see if they knew what he was planning they wouldn't have crucified Jesus because Jesus took all our sin all our debt but as it is written I has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God 
except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Are you searching out your riches in God? Are you searching out the deep things of God? Are you intimate in relationship with God? Do you know Him? Does He know you? You see, it's a real simple thing. We try to make it complicated. It's like the ABCs. It's like the ABCs. You accept Christ. Ask Him to come into your life. Confess that you are a sinner. That you have sinned. And that you believe that He sent His Son to die upon a cross for you. And believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead for your justification. A, B, C. Accept, believe, confess. And then start drinking the milk. Start drinking the milk. You want to hear from God? You can hear from Him right here. I've been reading Isaiah and I've just fallen in love with how God was so broken hearted over His people. And the times that like prostitutes, they turned their back and just kept walking away from His love and His mercy. You want an image of Christ? Read Isaiah. Read Isaiah. I just wonder if we in America, if the church would stop being deceived into religious tradition, if we would get down on our knees and pray this prayer in Daniel chapter 9, if God wouldn't grant us a revival. I fear for our children. I fear for this nation if it continues on and Jesus doesn't come. I don't know about you, but I want you to listen to this prayer. And I want to insert America, because that's where we live, where it says Jerusalem and Israel. I'm reading from Daniel chapter 9. Let me get my glasses on and I'll tell you what verse. Starting at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. He starts out with adoration, worshiping God. O Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We have refused to listen to your servants, the prophets, who spoke on your authority to our kings and princes or our politicians and our ancestors and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are in the right. But as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of America and all the nation, scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. O Lord, we... And our leaders, I'm going to substitute, and our ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instruction He gave us through His servant, the prophets. It says all Israel, but I'm going to say all of America has disobeyed your instruction and turned away, refusing to listen to your voice. So now the solemn curses and the judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because of our sin. You have kept your word and done to us and our rulers exactly as you warned. 
Never has there been such disaster as happened in Jerusalem or in America. There's never been a time like this in America. Every curse written against us in the law of Moses has come true. Yet we have refused to seek mercy from the Lord our God by turning from our sins and recognizing His truth. Therefore, the Lord has brought us the disaster He had prepared. The Lord our God was right to do all these things, for we did not obey Him. See, he starts out with adoration for God and then he confesses his sins. O Lord our God, you brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt. God brought honor to his name by building America, the greatest country in history. But look at us now. But we have sinned and are full of wickedness. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city. Jerusalem or America, your holy mountain. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem. That's us today. All the nations are mocking us. And mock us as people, Americans, because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how our city, our nation, that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, because we don't, but because of your mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay, oh my God, for your people and this country that bears your name. I wonder if we'd get serious with God in America, if He'd be gracious and kind as His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, that He might grant us a revival before the return of Jesus. You see, it's not enough to keep rules and regulations. We've got to have an intimate relationship with Christ. So this morning as we stand, I want you to examine your own life. Examine your own heart. Father, all these words that Daniel prayed are true for us in America. We have sinned greatly against you. We have scorned your word. We have disobeyed. We've slaughtered the innocent. We've called evil good and good evil. We've played the harlot with all the glitter and the glamour that Satan can throw at us. We've been religious, but we haven't been real with God. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us. Stir us our stir our hearts. Grant revival. Save our children and our grandchildren and our nation. Save the unborn that are being slaughtered daily. Only you can save us in this nation, Father. We humbly bow before you this morning. We ask you to search each heart in this room. And if there's any here today that haven't come to that place where they surrendered and said, Yes, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I pray that it would be today. If you need to come and talk to someone, see Pastor Bill, Pastor John, Pastor Dave, or me, we'll gladly take you in a room and talk and pray. If you have not accepted Jesus this morning, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that you never fail.
that even when we're unfaithful, you always remain faithful. Thank you, God. Bless this church service. Bless these people, Lord. Meet our needs. In the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.